Good morning. Uh, I'm keen to start today uh, with just a really, really quick little quiz. Just one question. Uh, it's on classic literature. Who can tell me which novel begins with the following? Wait. I'll come to you first, Rachel. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Rachel? It is. It's A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Uh, if I had a Yorkie to give you, I would give you it. But. <laughs> um, so, written nearly 150 years ago, uh, A Tale of Two Cities tells a fictional story of London and Paris during the times of the French Revolution. Now, today's sermon is not going to be based on A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, but it is based on A Tale of Two Different Cities um, called Thessalonica and Berea, which was written by Luke nearly 2,000 years ago. And since the end of April as a church, we've been looking at the missionary journeys of Paul um, through Acts chapter 14 to 17. And over the last two chapters, we have seen Paul travel to places around the Roman world, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Derbe, Antioch and Philippi, with just one mission. That mission was to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people in those places. And so this week we're going to be looking at what happens to Paul and Silas as they leave Philippi and head towards Thessalonica and Berea. So let's read Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 15 together. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I am, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and, a, and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans there were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul 
brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Let's pray. Father, we just um, praise you and thank you for your word, the fact that we are able to, um, to stand here and to, to read your word um, to us. Father, we just pray that as we uh, seek to learn from it this morning that you'll be at work here, that you'll, um, that you'll speak into our hearts and minds, that you'll challenge us in the ways that we need to be challenged, that you'll encourage us in the ways that we need to be encouraged. We just pray um, for your will to be done as we read from your scripture. Amen. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia and a city, a harbour town about 100 miles from Philippi where Paul and Silas were before. Although it was part of the Roman Empire, Thessalonica was a free city and this meant that Thessalonica was self-governed. Although taxes were still paid to Rome and Caesar was still considered to be king, the day-to-day running of the city was left to the local council. And when they reached Thessalonica, we're told that Paul went into the synagogue there and he reasoned with the Jews about the scriptures. It was common for Paul to do this, to begin his missionary work in the synagogues of a city. Because the synagogue was the place that the local Jews would go to worship, where the scholars, the teachers were to be found. In every synagogue that he went to, Paul presented the gospel to the Jews there. He spoke to the Jews of this promised Messiah, And the term Messiah means anointed one or chosen one, the same word in Greek as Christ. The term refers to one who has a specific purpose from God. And throughout the Old Testament, we can see promises from God to his people about a Messiah who would come into the world to save the world from sin. Because ever since sin entered our world, it has been crying out for a Messiah or a saviour. And as we read in Genesis chapter 3, God promised he would send this Messiah into the world to save the world. One who would come and defeat the power of sin, bring humanity back into a relationship with God. The Jews had been waiting and looking for this Messiah for hundreds of years. They waited with expectation, with expectation for the Messiah who would save the world from sin and bring God's people back to him. This was the role of this Messiah. And when he sat in the synagogue with these Jews, Paul said to them, that is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one that you're looking for. At different points throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is described as being the Son of God, a prophet, someone who spoke God's word, a miracle worker, a leader, and a king. And there's a passage in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament which points to what this Messiah would look like. Isaiah chapter 9, 6-7 says this, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And I've got this image as I read uh, the passage in Acts 17 of Paul in the synagogue sitting with this passage open and saying, that is telling us about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the Son of God. He is the prophet, the miracle worker, the leader, the king, the counsellor, the prince of peace. 
Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies and more. And he is the one that you've been waiting for for hundreds of years. Paul tells the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus was all of those things. He fulfilled them. Also we read that the main thrust of his teaching was that Jesus also had to suffer and die and come back from the dead. Again in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 describes what would happen to the Messiah in the following way. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was the description and prophecy of the Messiah that the Jews really, really struggled with. The Messiah was a conquering king, a prince, the son of God. How is it possible that someone who was all of those things could possibly suffer or be punished for any reason? And that was exactly what Paul's message was for those Jews in the synagogue. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die for anyone to ever be brought back into a relationship with God. Because God is fiercely holy. He is righteous and he is just. And this means that God cannot sin. He cannot consider sin. cannot have anything to do with sin. Of course, by comparison, all of humanity is sinful. We just have to look at the world around us to see that this is a world full of sin and the hurt that it causes. Just this week, events in Orlando in Bristol, West Yorkshire, and in Marseille, the ongoing situation that's happening in Syria and the Middle East is proof of the destructive nature of sin. Even in our own lives and in our own bodies, we can feel the weight of sin in ourselves. We struggle with lies and temptation, selfishness, hatred, idolatry. We are so sinful that a holy, perfect, righteous, and just God cannot possibly have anything to do with us without a need for the punishment for those sins. According to Romans 6.23, the punishment for sins is death. Death is a direct consequence for the sin that is inside us. We have a God who is holy and just, and then we have us, sinful, fallen, imperfect. We are so sinful that God could not possibly have anything to do with us, and yet he loves us, Despite our sin, God wants to be in a relationship with us. But it's not possible because of that sin. And you may ask, why does God not just get rid of all the sin? Well, imagine a criminal came before a judge and the judge was simply to excuse that criminal for the crime of murder or theft or whatever it might be, just simply because he loved that criminal. What would society think of that judge? Would that be righteous? Would that be just? For justice to be truly served, there has to be a punishment for wrongdoing. This was the basis for Paul's teaching in Thessalonica, that it was necessary for the Messiah to die. It was necessary for the Messiah to take the punishment for the sins of the world. And to take the punishment for the sins of our world, the Messiah had to live a sinless life, a perfect life, and then die as a punishment for our sins. And Jesus was the only person to ever live a completely sin, sinless and perfect life. In 
And so he lived a sinless life and then died on a cross where the wrath of God and the punishment for the sins of this world was put upon him. And as Paul sat in that synagogue and explained the need for the Messiah to die, he would have pointed to the person of Jesus as being the Messiah that the world was waiting for. And it's important to note as well that Paul wouldn't have been debating with uninformed people. For the majority of Jews, education was mainly in Scripture. A typical upbringing for a young Jew would involve going to the synagogue from the age of about six to learn what we have as the Old Testament. They would read it and study it and memorize it, most of them managing to memorize it by the age of 12. Potentially what we're going to do in space next term. (laughs) For those who excelled, by the age of 15, they would seek to become a disciple of one of the rabbi or teachers in the synagogue. Otherwise, they would go and they would begin work or learn a trade. That's up to nine years of study. I imagine it was fairly intense study as well without much study leave or half term. And when Paul went into the synagogue in Thessalonica, he would have been debating and reasoning with people who really, really knew the scriptures. And yet the message Paul delivered to them was this. You're looking for the Messiah. Well, he was here and you missed him. It's Jesus. Those prophecies, they all point to Jesus. The Messiah was God's saving plan for humanity and Jesus was it. And Paul's message to the Jews in Thessalonica and to us as we read it is this. You're full of sin and yet God loved you so much that he sent his son who he loved to die for you because it had to be Jesus. You can't pray your way out of sin. You can't go to church often enough to get rid of your sin. You can't do anything by yourself to get away from the punishment that your sin deserves. Jesus had to die on that cross because he was the only one who had never sinned. And he came back to life to prove that he was able to conquer that sin and to put your sin to death forever. The amazing promise that was given to the Jews then and to us now is that God had an answer to the problem of sin. It's amazing that this verse here, Romans 6.23, doesn't end with the line, for the wages of sin is death. It then goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This forgiveness from sin has been offered to us as a free gift. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. He took the punishment so that we could be set free from that sin and then came back to life to destroy sin. By his wounds we are healed. This is a free gift from God. And if you give your life to him, if you, as Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to God, can I please encourage you to do it now? Why wait? Accept the free gift of God. Be set free from the sin that is in your life. You can have eternal life with God through the sacrifice of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And this is a message that shouldn't get old, regardless of whether this is the first time you've heard it or the 50th. This is the message that Paul and Silas brought to Thessalonica. And verse 4 tells us that some of the Jews there heard this message and believed it as well as some Greeks and prominent women. 
Which begs the question, why does verse 4 not say, why does verse 4 say some believed, and why does it not say all believed? Considering how life-changing and important this message is, why did everyone not believe? Well, this is exactly the story of Paul's ministry, and in fact, the story of the gospel throughout the ages. People respond to the gospel in different ways. Verse 10 tells us how the Jews in Berea responded to the message of the gospel. We are told that they received the gospel with eagerness. People respond to the gospel in different ways, but as Christians, we are instructed to tell it to everyone, regardless of how we think they might receive it. Jesus told his disciples exactly that in Mark 16:15. He said to them, Go out into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. It sounds like a bit of a challenge, all of creation. As Christians, it's a challenge directly for us. Preach the gospel to all of creation means preach to everyone who is in your life and more. All of your family, all of your friends, your work colleagues, your school friends, people in your football team or netball team or book club or social group, everyone in your life needs to hear this news. What does it mean for you, starting right now, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation? I'm sure that we can all think of someone in our lives who needs to hear the gospel. The reason that the majority of Jews in Thessalonica responded to the gospel in such a negative way was that the gospel challenges people in ways that they don't enjoy being challenged. It challenges our comfortable lifestyles. It challenges our ideals. It challenges what we believe. And it challenges how we live on a day-to-day basis. And throughout the book of Acts, we can see the many, many times that Paul tells the gospel to someone or a group of people who reject it. So often, Paul's words fall on deaf ears. And the same will happen to us as we go into the world and share the gospel with the people in our lives. Some members of our families, the people at work or school that we interact with, our friends, as we try and do what Jesus has commanded us, to tell people about the life-changing news of the gospel, people will reject us and reject the message that we bring. But that shouldn't stop us from taking every opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Imagine if Paul had given up when his message was rejected the first time. Imagine Paul had given up when he was tossed in jail for sharing the gospel, as we learned last week. Imagine if Paul had given up when he was shipwrecked and beaten or thrown out of the cities and towns that he visited. He didn't. And the New Testament is full of people who came to know God through the evangelism of Paul. Paul's an amazing example to us and shows us how important it is to persevere with our attempts to share the gospel. Paul did it between the ages of 29 and 61, roughly. That means for 32 years, Paul told people about Jesus. Paul told people that Jesus died for them, that Jesus came back to life, and through Jesus, they can come back into relationship with God. He did it until the day he died. But I really believe that our response to Paul's mission trips are not supposed to be, wow, wasn't he impressive, but should be, how can I be like Paul in my own mission field? What is the point of us coming to church, hearing a sermon that makes us say, how impressive was Paul? It really should be, 
How impressive is God? How impressive is the story of the gospel? How can we possibly keep this to ourselves? Let's go out and tell all of creation. Paul has set an example not so that we can applaud him and compliment him on how committed he was to it, but so we can look at him and say, I'm going to follow in his footsteps to tell the whole of creation that Jesus died for the sins of the world and the free gift of God is eternal life through him. How can we possibly keep this to ourselves? So this week, ask yourself, who can you share the gospel with? How ludicrous would it be for us to keep this to ourselves in the four walls of this church? In verses 5 to 9, we're introduced to some of the believers in Thessalonica. It says this, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. We only hear of Jason at one other point in the New Testament, when in Romans 16 and 21, it mentions him to just be a fellow Jew and a co-worker with Paul. We don't know a lot about him, but it would appear that Jason was a keen supporter of Paul and Silas and their mission trip. And the local Jews obviously found out about this. He may have been the leader of the church, or perhaps it was held in his house. We don't know a lot about him, and yet he, along with some other believers, find themselves caught up in the middle of the anger of the Jews in Thessalonica. In their jealousy at the effectiveness of Paul and Silas's ministry, and in their anger at the gospel and the challenge that it presented them, they turned on the first Christians that they could find. They incited a riot, dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, and accused them of causing trouble in the city and all over the Roman world. Again, this is nothing new in the story of Christianity through history. The New Testament is filled with accounts of Christians and the church being persecuted. In Jerusalem, Philippi, Achaia, Ephesus, Rome, and in Galatia, it's also filled with Christians who face persecution and opposition for the faith that they professed. Stephen, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, Peter, John, James. The church has always faced persecution and always will. According to Open Doors, a charity which supports persecuted Christians and churches, persecution in churches around the world is on the rise. In countries like North Korea, Iran, Somalia, Syria, Eritrea especially, a small number of churches in those countries face extreme persecution, imprisonment, torture, and even death for daring to believe in and follow Christ. And these churches need our prayers. For us right now in the Western world and in Great Britain today, we may not face attack, arrest or imprisonment for our faith, but I believe that that day is coming. We currently live in a very unique 
situation in the UK where the church is able to meet in a designated building like this with no fear of serious persecution. But as society shifts around us, the message that we preach will offend more and more. In a sense, the Jews in Thessalonica got it right when they said that Paul and Silas were causing trouble around the Roman world. More accurately, the message that they were preaching was causing trouble. As I said before, the gospel will offend lifestyles, comfortability, ideals. That becomes more and more true in our society, in our country, every day. The gospel will clash more and more with the culture around us. The church will be pushed further and further to the edges of society, perhaps one day even being driven underground, like, some, like in some of the countries I mentioned before. And it might sound alarmist to, stay, to stand up here and say that today. It might not happen in the next few weeks or years, but it will happen. Jesus told the first disciples, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Matthew 10:22. As a church and as Christians, we need to be ready to face the persecution that is likely to come our way in the future. We need to stand firm and continue to declare the gospel to a world that needs it. And we need to ensure that we declare the true gospel. It's so easy to make the gospel more palatable, to avoid talking of sin or the need for the punishment of sins, to avoid talk of repentance and self-denial, talk about heaven whilst avoiding talking about hell but the gospel is not the gospel without the need for repentance and we need to ensure that we preach the true gospel not some watered down version of it that will be more palatable to the culture that we live in and we need to continue to pray for the persecuted church around the world and for the local church to continue to have the freedom that it has today We, the church, belong to Christ. The church is this group of people here, not the building, the group of people that belongs to the Lord. There is no power that can destroy it. Jesus himself said to his disciples when talking about his church in Matthew 16 and 18, the gates of hell shall not overpower it. In the end, perhaps to save the church in Thessalonica any more trouble, Paul and Silas moved on to Berea. Verses 10 to 12 say this. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. I believe that there's a lot for us to learn from the Bereans here. Again, as they had done before, Paul and Silas began by going into the synagogue. They preached the same message to the Bereans that they did to the Thessalonians. And we are told that the Bereans received this message with great eagerness. We're told that they examined the scripture every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. The tale of these two cities lies in comparing Thessalonica and Berea and the response that the gospel received in those cities. In Thessalonica, the gospel was received by some of the Jews there, but the majority rejected it and stirred up trouble because of it. 
But by comparison, we're told that when the Bereans heard the gospel, many of them believed it and accepted it. And it would appear that we can attribute this to the Bereans' attitude towards Scripture. When Paul came to them with the message that the Messiah had to die and come back to life, and that this Messiah was Jesus Christ, they examined God's word to see if it was true. So high was their regard for Scripture when it was pointed out to them that Jesus was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. They believed it to be true because it said so in God's word. And this is how we should regard God's word as well. Knowing the Bible inside and out is key to defending it and growing from it. Paul knew the scriptures inside and out, which meant when he walked into those synagogues to share the gospel and debate with those educated Jews, he knew the words to say and the arguments to make. As Christians in our world today, it is inevitable that we will be challenged and questioned on what we believe. Not only about the gospel, but also what we believe about certain social issues on marriage, adoption, euthanasia, abortion, sexuality. We might be asked why we believe what we do in the light of scientific advancements and discoveries. We may need to give reasons for why we believe that living for Christ is the only way to live. And so it's worth, worth asking yourself, are you ready for those questions? Do you know your Bible well enough to defend it? The Bible is worth studying, understanding, and spending time getting to know. We're told in 2 Timothy that all scripture is, insp- and is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. As Christians, all that we need to know about living in this world, serving God and knowing his will and instruction can be found in God's word. And that's why it demands our time, our respect. Spending time studying God's word is vital for us to defend it. It's also vital for us to grow as Christians, as we're commanded to do. And how good is it to be able to read accounts like the one that we've read today and see just how powerful the gospel really is? To read accounts of people who went to places where people were and brought the gospel to them. To hear that people like Paul and Silas were willing to continue preaching even when they were rejected and run out of town. To discover that Christians continue to live for God in spite of persecution. And to learn that God's word is active and alive and he is at work in the world today. Sometimes I think we have an idea that the people that we read of in the Bible saw a kind of success in evangelizing that we will never see. But I really believe that to be untrue. Through faithful preaching of the gospel, reaching out to the world that so badly needs the gospel, that so badly needs a saviour, through faithful teaching of God's word to the people in our lives and living lives that glorify him, we can see people come to know God in in as life-changing a way as some did in Thessalonica and many did in Berea. Revival in our church, revival in the UK, revival in our world is not beyond our God in any means. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for 
and the accounts that we read of people doing your work. We just thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel. We just praise you and give you thanks for the fact that your son came and died in a world that so badly needed a Messiah, that so badly needed a Savior. Father, we just thank you for the free gift that you've given us, the wonderful news of the gospel. We just pray that for the people who are in our lives that need to hear it, we'll declare it truthfully, that we won't water it down, uh, that people will come to know you through the preaching of the gospel in our lives. Father, just help us as we go in this week uh, to work or to college or to school, wherever we might be going. Father, we just pray that you'll help us to be bold, to preach your word faithfully to the people in our lives. Amen. Thank you very much to Ryan. Um, that concludes our meeting today. Wish you all a very good week. Hopefully you've got some may, uh, various activities on. Um, enjoy your Father's Day where possible as well. But thank you very much for coming along and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. <laughs>